Expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Gavin. Hey, good evening. And by phone on the program today, we've got ICRT Central Taiwan correspondent Donovan Smith. Donovan. Hey, good evening. Today on the show, we're talking about potential new arms deals between the U.S. and Taiwan after an arms industry conference that wrapped up in the U.S. this week and the national health insurance system, which is facing scrutiny, oddly enough, for having too much money. But first, this was a big week in the election politics for Taiwan, with the decision made at this Wednesday's KMT Central Standing Committee to hold a special party congress, which could be a step toward removing Deputy Legislative Speaker Hong Xiu-ju as the party's presidential candidate, and maybe... Now, we're kind of getting into uh, hypotheticals here, but maybe replacing her with KMT chairman Eric Ju. Uh, So the KMT potentially changing horses really late in the game. This is very heady stuff, to be sure. Uh, So we are spending the whole first half of the show on this. Uh, And to help us round out the conversation uh, and make sure we cover all of our bases, we're going to welcome onto the program regular contributor Jane Ricards of The Economist. Jane, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Keith. Uh, So, Jane, I want to start with the why and the where is this coming from. Uh, The motion filed by KMT Central Standing Committee member uh, Chang Shuoping was passed unanimously uh, without being even put to a vote on Wednesday. So uh, clearly a lot of momentum behind this, which I think is kind of striking when you consider uh, that no matter how this decision turns out, uh, having this kind of public tug of war over the candidacy is certainly going to damage the party. So there's a lot to lose here. Uh, so, Jane, how did we get to the point uh, where they're willing to take this move and, and kind of take this bloody fight uh, forward? Uh, does, it, does it all come down to Hong's poor polling numbers? Um, yes. Look, basically, I think it is poor polling numbers. Um, I've spoken to sources in the KMT and um, basically the top brass... I've been told off the record that um, the top brass do want Hong Shouju to go. Um, last week, she polled once again behind Sung and James Sung, that's the PFP's presidential candidate. And for people familiar with Taiwan politics, um, there's always a phenomenon with blue voting on election day that you'll drop one to save the other. Mm. And that's why you note that Sung, James Sung in the 2012 election um, got much less than what polls were saying, that he got very, very tiny percentage of the vote because um, the, the Blues felt a sense of crisis and they dropped, um, pres- they dropped Sung to ensure that Ma would get re-elected because they didn't want to see um, a DPP victory. So voting somewhat strategically. Yes, yes. So basically, if Sung is more popular, that means that people will choose Sung over Hong. And so that means that the PFP will be basically grabbing a, a larger share of the votes. Now, but I would say that this decision of the Guomindang isn't about the presidential election. It's about the um, legislative elections. Because mm, having her at the top of the ticket is going to uh, tank all of those local elections' yes, chances. Yes, exactly, exactly. So um, Eric Dew knows I think he can't win against Tsai Ing-wen, which is why he didn't want to run in the first place. But I think it's reached the point 
where the KMT looks set to lose Parliament as well, which hasn't happened, I don't think, in its history. It certainly hasn't happened since 1949. Mm. So that would be a historic first. And um, I think what I was told was that um, Hung polled against, um, behind Sung once more, and that was what did it for them, one of the things which was the tipping point. So, yes, I think it is about poll numbers, and I think it just shows how dire the situation is that they're willing to risk this bloodbath rather mm. than let Hung run. That just shows how badly Hung was going, in my opinion. Right, and I want to get to what we can expect from uh, Eric Ju in just a second, uh, but first, uh, Donovan, uh, do you agree with all that? Is that what you're seeing here? Um, yeah, I agree with Jane's point that, that the uh, probably the main strategic uh, value to, the, for, to making a change is, is for the legislative UN. And from what uh, from what I know down here in central Taiwan, the in Zhanghua, for example, when Hong came down to campaign for the youth vote, three out of four of the local legislators down here uh, refused to get anywhere near her. Right, there's, of course, there's also been comments about how Eric Chu has had major disagreements over Hong Shou-Chu's China policy because, of course, she's been rather outspoken about sort of deviating from the current KMT China policy and changing it slightly. She's used the word change the KMT and its China policy in some of her talks, of course, Jane. Yes, I agree, Gavin, but I think this is all um, two sides of the one coin because, again, um, it's her her identity with the public of being a mainlander, of being way too close to China that actually turns off the southern candidates. So it's, it's an, it, to some degree, it's an ethnic question that um, they can't have a mainlander campaign in the south, but it's also very much a political question that, particularly in those southern regions, I think someone who leans too close to China, a candidate who leans too close to China, just doesn't wash. Mm. All right. Well, speaking of Chu, uh, let's uh, stay on that point for just a second. Uh, he has stayed pretty true to form in this last mm. week, uh, not saying anything too definitive. Mm. Uh, but he has said that as head of the party, he is obligated to, quote, shoulder the responsibility uh, should KMT presidential candidate Hong uh, drop out of the January race. So, you know, still not saying he's for sure going to be doing it, but... Uh, that's a big change from earlier this year when he was saying, no, I'm not going to do it and stop asking me. Uh, mm. So, Jane, uh, what, what do you expect to see from Chu should uh, Hong actually be dropped as the candidate? Um, no, I, from what I've been told, um, I think it's definitely going to be Chu if Hong is dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also think from Chu's public statements when he came out and he said that Hong's um, China policy was... a very distant from the mainstream. I think that was also a sign that um, Jew is not backing Hung anymore. And if you remember that Jew has been one of Hung's strongest backers thus far, um, so to I think for Jew to come out and make those comments about Hung's China policy shows he's not supporting her. And from what I've what people have told me, it will be Jew if Hung is dropped. Hmm. Uh, but the question of whether or not she will be dropped, I mean, I, I think it's uh, still worth asking that question, especially since uh, it seems like she's not going to go down without a fight. Gavin, can you tell us about uh, some of her statements this week? Well, she's made several statements. I mean, her supporters have made several statements as well. Her supporters made some rather loud statements yesterday outside the KMT's Taipei headquarters where the meeting of the Central Standing Committee was taking place. And there was pushing matches with the police. There was them thumping cars as the KMT officials left the building. They Actually, they put razor wire up the day before, which I looked at and went, this is a bit extreme. 
Then, of course, this scuffle was took out yesterday, and that was the reason they put razor wire up. Quite Maybe obviously. it was a bit of foresight. Yes, and of course, a lot of the people there yesterday, I hate to use the word elderly, but a lot of them were elderly. The Taipei Times is willing to use that word. They're elderly <laughs> people. The more pro-China people mm-hmm. that would vote for the KMT. And, of course, Zhang Anle arrived. He's, of course, the former mobster, if we should call him former mobster, whatever. We'll call him the former mobster. And he's, well, that's a course, fantastic spin for Hong. I mean... <laughs> yeah, but great. Yeah, a former mobster turns up who's completely pro-China and stands there and rants right. on about how people should vote for. <laughs> Not a very good advertisement at all. Right, exactly. And probably rather worrying for the KMT. In fact, it probably just goes to support Eric Chu's decision to sort of maybe mm. go, hang on a minute, this should stop right here. Yeah. And, and mm. so, you know... It looks like she isn't going to go down without a fight. Her supporters are going to see this as a huge insult if she's taken out after, you know, she went through all of the uh, proper legal procedures to get there. Of course, she came up with a great statement that said, if they replace her, that being the KMT, the party will enter another precarious situation. Right. And there is even speculation, although it has been denied from the home camp, that there are tapes of Eric Jew uh, actually offering some kind of uh, money or, or some, kind of, uh, some, some kind of reward if she does drop out, which would, of course, violate all kinds of laws, uh, you know. Home camp has denied that this exists, and, and so maybe we won't hear anything from this, but obviously it's going to get ugly. But talking about money, what I'd like to know, does she get her deposit back? That's a good question. It's a big deposit. It's a big deposit. And, of course, she made a big song and dance about when she put the deposit down to become the KMT candidate because the KMT did not nominate her. She made a great song and dance about how she wasn't a very rich person and she spent all her savings to put the deposit on to run as president. So is the deposit returnable? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. Uh, I, uh, the question I want to put to uh, you two over the phone right now, though, is... Uh, you know, with this bloodbath just over the horizon, is the central party really going to take this on? Do, are, are they really so worried about that local election that they're willing to put the party through this? Do you, do you, do you expect we don't know uh, when this party congress is going to happen? They haven't set a date yet. But uh, do you expect this to uh, really go through the party congress? Um, I do um, for the simple reason that um, I'm it. it uh, it will look ugly for about a few weeks, but if you think about it, what can the deep, deep blue do? They've got nowhere to go. They can either vote KMT, they could have their own independent presidential candidate who wouldn't get many votes, or they can vote DPP, and they don't want to vote DPP. So they've got no alternative but to go along with um, whatever the majority of blues want. But the swing voters and undecideds, on the other hand, do have somewhere to go. They can just go over to the DPP or the PFP. So I think KMT headquarters will be prioritising the middle of the road, the swing voters, and they they will. I think they think they can afford to leave the blues alone. And as for the legality of it, I under, what, from what I understand from talking to people in the KMT and analysts is that currently there is no legal um, framework or le- there is no legal basis for switching candidates, and that's the whole purpose of this national congress, so they can amend the laws and switch their presidential candidates. Um, what I understand is there's increasingly a consensus that Hong should go. But having said that, as Gavin pointed out, that it will get very, very, very ugly. And maybe if it does get ugly, they won't change Hong. I'm inclined to think they will, but Gavin has a good point about it all getting very ugly and making the party's chances even more remote. Donovan? 
the, the, the interesting thing is, is that if they replace Hong, who would it be? Now, obviously, Eric Zuliland seems like the obvious choice. But here's the thing, is that he's not going to do... The only thing that he would add that Hong doesn't have is that he's... While he's also a mainlander, which doesn't appeal down to the South, he never says anything controversial ever at all. The man has the, the world's most boring Facebook page you've ever seen. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the... Um, he... He, the thing is, but his career is, is effectively already over. I mean, his mm. he's, he has had a whole string of disasters in uh, New Taipei City. His uh, his reign as KMT chair has been viewed as disastrous, and it's not going to get much better. Um, and then, and then, if he has a head-on collision with Hong, which is already happening, she is. I think there's going to be a little bit more interest over the next couple of weeks over Hong's mm. strengths, as long as she can veer away from being repeatedly too defensive, which seems, seems to be her weakness now. If she can go on the attack effectively, she can underscore all of Eric Chu's weaknesses, which will undermine him and the party even further. Because the, the things that she has, her particular strengths, are his weaknesses. She's particularly straightforward and blunt, Whereas he's vacuous and you know he he can't say anything clear to save his life, and he's um, very playful. Yeah, <laughs> um, he you know she's uh, she's shown quite a bit of integrity in refusing to run using party assets, which is a major issue with the public uh, regarding the KMT. Uh, whereas of course Eric Chu is pretty much is the embodiment of the of, the, of that princeling cast. Um, and also she's running on principle, even though her principles seem to be coming out of a time warp from the 1980s. She does seem to be, gen- seems to be genuinely believe in her ideology. So she, she, she's a much more sincere, straight, and, and with some integrity. Unfortunately, her ideology is totally wrong for the time and place. But I think that if there is a battle between her and Eric Chu, it's just going to further undermine Chu. And I don't think it's actually going to help them very much in the center and the south. It'll help some, meaning that I think legislative candidates might be willing to appear on a stage with uh, Eric Chu, but I don't think they're going to campaign for him very effectively, and I don't think he's going to add very much to them, uh, to to their appeal to voters. Uh, So I think it's going to be of, of little help that way but it's going to be very damaging in terms of people's careers. Um, so the, the other option is, will they bring in another candidate? Um, and I really only see two options. Uh, one is they bring in Hao Longbin. I think he's the only semi-viable one. He's also deeply unpopular out of, uh, outside of the North, but less so than Hong, and maybe now less so than Eric Chu. Um, and then the other option is they bring in somebody... Now, they won't bring in Wang Jinping because, of course, the elites don't like the factional politicians, but they might bring in an, an, a complete newbie outsider, uh, like, for example, uh, sort of a dark horse character, like a Li Hongyuan or, or you know, the ex-minister of the interior, somebody like that. That, I think, would be their best bet because then they're starting with a clean slate. Uh, and then Hong would not necessarily have much to attack the person on because the person's a largely unknown. And then a lot of Pan Blues would, would have a surge of hope they could pin their hopes on. This person, at least for a while, until they open their mouth, would not cause too much damage and may even help in the center and the south. Right, I mean, but, I mean do you think there's a possibility that they'll offer Hong the vice presidency spot? Um, it depends on how hard she fights. I mean, if if she, you know if she does, she, you know, if she's willing to accept a deal, then I think they will. But if she's going to keep fighting, then I'd assume no. Hmm. 
All right. Uh, before we leave politics for good, I want to uh, put a bit more of a bigger picture kind of question to you guys. Uh, it seems like a lot of the commentators on the green end of things are quite gleefully writing their uh, op-eds about all of this uh, chaos that's going on in the KMT. And some are even saying that this is potentially signaling the end of the party. Uh, some people seem quite certain of that, in fact. Uh, Jane, I'm interested on your take. Are, are, are people coming to this conclusion too soon? I think so. Um, it's a very large party and it still has a lot of assets, some of them illegally obtained. Um, no, I'm just joking. Um, no, it, it's still a very big party and it still has structures and mechanisms and organisational procedures. So there's sort of a basis there, whereas a new party would have to start from scratch. Um, I certainly think the KMT is in a lot of trouble, but I don't think this is the end of the KMT. I think they could well not win the legislature. And um, so from a very bigger picture or geopolitical perspective, that's going to make it easier for a DPKP government to do what it wants because it won't be blocked by Pandalu lawmakers, you know, if that's the case and they lose the legislature. I think that's a big possibility. Um, Whether the KMT will become a marginal party and another very big opposition party will replace it, um, I think that's premature to say that. Hmm. Well, I actually uh, made a bit of a splash in the spring by writing an article right. uh, saying that the collapse of the KMT was imminent. You were the <laughs> early bird. You were getting <laughs> on the a train lot of early. people are saying that. Party. Yes. <laughs> so, so I'm yes. going to disagree with Jane on this one. Yes. Um, I think the uh, I think structurally the party's unsound. The the elites. Uh, basically, they don't have another generation. They 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 were they literally depended on a relatively small number of families and their mainlander families, and there is no new ge- next generation coming in. Uh, Sean Lien was pretty much the last gasp. They have that one Chang guy running for city council. That's it. They they you know how long Bean still exists, but they, the next generation they're all U.S. nationals, they're Canadian nationals, they're mm. they're all foreign nationals and can't run even if they had showed the interest. So the elites basically don't have new blood coming in. This is not like the 2000 election where they had they had uh, you know Jason Hu, they had Ma Ying-jeou, and they had people in the party that people were still excited about. There's nobody in the party from that next generation coming in that anybody has any interest or any enthusiasm about or has, has really any clout. Uh, so the party is bereft of any heavyweights on that front. Now, the other half of the party, the factions, are already bolting, and I predicted this would start happening in the spring. I predicted this would happen in the spring, and starting this summer, that's exactly what's happening. Because what they're going to see is that the KMT is going to lose control of the legislature, which means that the the, the party assets law is going to pass. So the KMT is not going to have the financial clout that it had once had. Plus, the elites of the party have been at war with with the factions for quite some time. They've always kind of looked down on them, and they've tried to control them and how they operate and limit their ability to operate outside of their local geographic region, and have systematically undermined them for a long time. So there's a lot of resistance or a lot of resentment, and they don't like they don't particularly like the KMT ideology, particularly as the public's moving against it. So there's really very little reason for the factions to remain loyal. Plus, the, the factions are really only relevant now in very countryside areas with people over 50. So they're losing their ability to be elected in outside of very local elections. But on a more national level, they're losing their ability to be elected. So I don't, and, and right now, the way that people's identity, people now self-identify as Taiwanese, 
unless the KMT switches to the self-identification as a Taiwanese, not a Chinese nationalist party, they're, they, they're basically they're only going to be able to hold on to small pockets of the country. So I, I think they're going to collapse into small party status. All right, so we got a vote for and a vote against, but uh, I suppose only time is going to tell. Uh, but we are tapped out for politics today, so we are going to have to wait for that time to tell. Uh, it's time for a break, and uh, we're going to have to say goodbye to Jane Rickards. Thank you so much for joining us for this first half, Jane. Thanks, Keith. When we come back, arms deals and health care is what we're going to be talking about. Two topics that don't generally show up side by side, but there you go. That's what we're doing today. Stay tuned for that when it comes up after this. And we're back to Taiwan this week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around the island. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Donovan Smith and Gavin Phipps. Next up, we're talking arms deals, the military variety. There has been a marked decline in the past number of years of arms sales between the U.S. and Taiwan, leading, of course, to concerns that the military balance across the Taiwan Strait is tipping in China's favor. Well, defense industry insiders got together this week in Williamsburg, Virginia, of all places, for the U.S.-Taiwan Defense Industry Conference. That's the title of the thing. And in a series of closed-door meetings, discussed what potential there is for U.S.-Taiwan defense cooperation. So reporters were not allowed inside, but there has been a lot of buzz from people in the know about what's being discussed there. And word on the street is that there is, in fact, a bit of a deal in the works. Not a big one. But a deal nonetheless. Uh, Rupert Hammond Chambers, who is the uh, president of the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council, the group overseeing the conference, says things have moved forward quite a bit in the last few weeks, largely due to the souring relationship between the U.S. and China. Cyber attacks on our, on our government and on our company, on the island building in the South China Sea, you know, the less than friendly uh, economic and business environment our companies are experiencing increasingly in China, have all soured the atmosphere with in U.S.-China relations, and that that would be having an impact on the willingness of the administration to look at Taiwan relations. So Chambers says that he expects the $2 billion package to be announced and then introduced to the U.S. Congress in late December uh, or early January, somewhere around about there. Uh, Gavin, tell us about this package. Well, there's not much to say, really. It, it includes four used Perry-class frigates, some mine-sweeping ships, and munitions, a.k.a. missile systems. All right, so as I mentioned, uh, you know, there has been a bit of a slowdown during the Obama administration of weapons sales. Uh, so is even a small sale seen as a bit of a victory? Well, this isn't even – everybody sort of knew about this sale, basically. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a, oh, they're going to sell them four frigates and some minesweepers and some missiles. It was all like, oh, well, we know about that anyway because they've been talking about it for years. Yeah. You know, when you buy weapons, it's not like going to the supermarket. You don't put them in your trolley and walk out with them the same day. You have to order them years and years in advance. There's a bit of a process to it. Yeah, there is a process to that. And, of course, they do have to go to the U.S. Congress, which is a formality, mm-hmm. basically. Any, and most, nearly 99.9% of arms packages that get taken to the U.S. Congress get passed. Right. Uh, but you, basically you're saying that they don't have the batch of goodies that they were waiting for there, uh, which was mostly subs is, is the well, real no, thing the, that they the, want. The, 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 the submarines is a completely – they weren't going to get That's subs the last cause at, at this, this conference at all. This conference was just – they have it every year and it's just an annual tete-a-tete between the two sides about Taiwan's defense needs and how the U.S. can help. Okay. So let's go over the, the things that actually did make progress then. 
But there was an interesting comment by the we'll start with Taiwan's defence minister, Taiwan's deputy defence minister, Liu Chen Wu. He basically came out with the same old, same old, and said that he hopes that the ROC US military exchanges will continue. Wait, wait, I said the things that did make progress. Come on. Well, I'll start with this one. The other, okay. the other interesting thing was though a one US official. Abraham Denmark. Apparently, he's the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for East Asia. Mm-hmm. Now, he's been cited by the media as actually calling on U.S. defense companies to transfer technologies to Taiwan to allow Taiwan to produce more indigenous weapon systems. Right, that was a big... Own th- weapons. Well, it's, it, it, it's, in a way, it's a pretty big thing because technically this... He, he might be only the one of probably several Deputy Assistant Secretaries of Defense for East Asia... But the fact that an official said it from the Obama administration mm-hmm. is quite something. And that's um, kind of a way of getting around opposition from China is, you know, you, well, an arms package from the U.S. might be too politically sensitive. But if uh, Taiwan can make it themselves, that's a different ball of wax. Yeah, but unfortunately, of course, when you, sell, when you ask companies in America, such as, of course, arms companies include Boeing, mm-hmm. big company contracts with China. Right. So... How Boeing and other companies with contracts with China to do non-military, civilian contracts mm-hmm. with China will take this is mm-hmm. still open to speculation. Yeah, I mean, that's my, that's my question, is that he was appealing to companies to transfer it. And, you know, how much weight does an, an appeal like that have and why would, the, why would it be in these companies' interest to do so? Well, that's, obviously, companies like Boeing would be going, well, hang on a minute. But obviously, Raytheon, a company which already has great long ties with Taiwan – would be more willing to do it. But the larger companies with contracts in China, with China, all those being civilian, would probably be even wary of sort of exchanging the technology to make a screw with Taiwan. Right. Uh, getting back to the submarine issue, uh, there wasn't any progress there, but uh, this is another thing that may get uh, some international support for uh, an indigenous development. Yeah, they could do, but I mean, there's been, they released the budget for it several months ago, two months ago, I believe, to do the design stage. It was a design contract stage for an indigenous submarine fleet. Unfortunately, the money, I don't have the figure in front of me, wasn't very much. Mm. All right. There are questions, I know for a fact, there are questions in Washington, whether it was just sort of, let's just say we'll give them this money to do this just because it will look like we're doing something. Mm. Right, so maybe not as substantive as it looks. Yes. Uh, so, so what about? I mean, we're, we're watching the uh, end, of, the winding down of two administrations, both in Taiwan and the U.S. Uh, the, the Obama administration, many Taiwan watchers have uh, criticized it for not doing uh, a whole lot to support Taiwan security. Uh, but uh, as we heard Rupert Hammond Chambers saying there, uh, perhaps a souring relationship with China means a strengthening relationship with Taiwan. Do, do we expect to see more arms deals uh, like this uh, in the future? Well, who knows? Who depends who's going to win the U.S. election, doesn't it, really? So basically, we're just in a, in a kind of uh, in-between we're a state. It's we're a in a void. void, yeah. In fact, probably for the next year, there'll be a void. Mm. Taiwan, if, if the DPP wins, the DPP will start to open its own channels to the states, which already has. But, but then, of course, who are they going to talk to? Because it's all going to change in the states come next November. Right. So it's going to be a vacuum. So we're not going to know anything for uh, quite a bit of time. Uh, so I guess we're just going to leave that with a, a, a question mark hanging over it for now. Up next, the Ministry of Health and Welfare has found itself in a bit of an odd predicament this week. It seems Taiwan's national health insurance system is making too much money. 
According to health officials, uh, as of July, the reserve fund had accumulated 200 billion NT. Uh, that is enough to cover more than four months of health care insurance expenditures. So uh, we're talking about a big chunk of change there. How did we get here? Well, this goes back to just two years ago when the insurance system's finances were not in such good shape. Uh, but then what's being called the second generation NHI system went into effect. And with that came increased premiums, uh, focusing on upped taxes for non-salary income. So we can uh, discuss that in a little bit more length in a second. But uh, the bottom line here is the system wasn't making enough money in 2013. Revenue was upped. Now it's making more than it needs. And some lawmakers are questioning if premiums should be kept this high uh, when it seems like we could drop them and the system might still be okay. Uh, Gavin, what were those lawmakers saying this week? Well, to start with, it's kind of ironic, really, because, of course, when the second-generation national health insurance system was introduced, lawmakers were up in arms about it. But now, of course, to make no pun intended, it has paid dividends. Ah. I wanted to get that in there. because So a little bit of a pun intended. A little bit of a pun intended there, but never mind. Yes, like you said, Keith, the um, new insurance system, the second generation one, has enabled the National Insurance Health System, has enabled the National Health Insurance System to accumulate over two hundred billion NT dollars, basically. And lawmakers are saying, "Well, hang on a minute, maybe you should cut the two percent current rate, which is the premium charged on supplementary income, and put into the health insurance system by at least a percent." Mm-hmm. Might not sound like very much, you know, 1%, 1% here and there, here and there. And, of course, that's the question. The government has said, or the National Health Insurance System Corporation company has said that it will discuss this and come up with an idea. And earlier this week, the Financial Supervisory Commission said it is also looking at cutting the rate from 2 to 1%. However, I don't think this will go through. Because I think more people will be in an uproar going, hang on a minute, well, then we'll start. If we cut it, we'll end up back where we started. Then every right. two years, we're going to have to have the next generation health insurance system. Right. right. It sounds like the Ministry of Health and Welfare, uh, we're kind of making the point that, right, of course we want to accrue some chunk of money because there's going to be lean years and there's going to be fat years. And uh, so this is a fat year, but it's to prepare for the lean year. There's also a concern, of course, about the aging population. Right. I, they were saying that by 2017, we're going to be feeling the pinch of the aging population. And so, of course, expenditures are going to go up. Yeah. So, they, you know, whether the government move it on. Again, talk, again, back to the military thing, the defense issues, it's a void. I mean, you know, if the current government does opt to cut it, will the next government opt to raise it again? <laughs> Which will be absolutely inane because it'll only, it'll be up and down in like months. Yeah, maybe we, should, stupid. maybe we should take a break from any kind of predictions for the next three months. Uh, Probably should do. Well, I'll make one prediction, and that is that right. pretty much any time government has uh, some extra surplus money, they'll quickly find a way to spend it. Yep, and that's kind of what we're looking at here, exactly. <laughs> And they do have some genuine problems, though, that they could work on. For example, the high turnover rate with nurses and that sort of thing. Yeah, generally, um, employment in the medical sector, of course. Yeah. Because, of course, doctors who can make money are uh, nipping off on an aeroplane and going somewhere and making more money. And, of course, the lowly nursing staff overworked and underpaid. Of course, now they aren't directly employed by the NHI, though, so that's... Uh... That's the true, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, every healthcare system has its uh, little kinks to work out. Uh but, uh, you know, I, I, I guess the bottom line, I mean, you, we could see this as something of a, of a victory, though, right? Uh, it's, it's actually making money, so there's some stability there, right? Well, there is still a bit. I mean, of course, it's, it is, uh, but I come from England where, of course, national health insurance, everybody has it, the national health insurance system, although the, several governments in recent years have tried to sell it to corporate 
companies. Thankfully, they haven't sold all of it. But Taiwan's, of course, was introduced in 1995 to much acclaim and many questions. But, of course, it's now one of the world's most successful. Right. It actually functions. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Works. <laughs> Absolutely the way it should do. It's just, it's just working too well. It's making too much money. Right, and okay, so I guess we're going to hold to our pledge and uh, not make any big predictions there since so many changes are coming to Taiwan politics, which means it's time for our last story for today. And uh, I don't want to call this one a funny story. It's more of a off-the-beaten-track sort of story. Uh, but we're going to put it in the silly story slot uh, for you podcast listeners. And uh, we're going to be sticking with this healthcare theme, more specifically end-of-life care. Uh, yes, we all got to go sometime, as uh, the saying goes. Not much of a choice there, but what you do have a choice of is where you're going to go out. And uh, according to one recent report, if you're in Asia, Taiwan is the best choice. Apparently, according to this is according to the Economist Intelligence Unit, and Taiwan leapt from 14th to 6th place on the index comparing end-of-life care in 80 countries. Which is, it was the top one in Asia and the sixth place worldwide. There we go. Apparently the upper echelons of the index were dominated by wealthy European and Asia Pacific and North American countries. It was actually topped by the UK. I topped don't by know, the, that I was the know, number one in the I world. I don't know if that's something to be proud of or not. I'd sooner England, won, I'd, I'd sooner England won the World Cup. <laughs> but I guess I've got the UK top in the great place to die. I guess you can go for a curry. Yeah, well, in the quality of, literally the quality of death indexes. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 that's right, yeah. So, anyway. So, so what gets you on a uh, high ranking on the quality of death index? Well, apparently there was... The rankings are based on hospital and hospice environments, mm. the number of staff and how well-trained they are, the affordability of end-of-life care, and the public's involvement in palliative care. All right. And so Which, I guess Taiwan just invests a lot in all of those things. And then uh, also, I mean, I, I think it's probably a cultural thing in a way, well, too. they made a comment. That there's a comment, apparently, according to the Economist Intelligence Unit, Taiwan's sixth place makes it the highest Asian country on the list. In a society where talk of death is usually taboo, the integration of community engagement for palliative care education and the encouragement of talking about death through the use of mainstream and social media has helped Taiwan successfully increase public awareness of palliative care. Yeah, they also said that uh, they, they highlighted, particularly in the last five years, apparently Taiwan has instituted improvements in introducing psych- psychologists to the system, uh, which help yeah, yeah. people die with dignity, is what they said. All right, so uh, talking about death is the way to uh, make the system better. I feel uncomfortable with this topic, so I guess I'm not really the person to lead the charge there. And uh, uh, Gavin, you've been in Taiwan uh, for a while, so I guess this is a, a, a strong vote in you sticking around town? I'm not that old, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> Just making a couple implications there. All right, fine. Fair enough. We're not going to make any other implications. All right, so we're going to leave this dark, dark topic uh, and round out the show there. You can send us your thoughts on the week major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. It lets us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Thank you, Gavin. Yeah, bye-bye. And Donovan Smith. And have a good evening. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. 
Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.